Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is an award-winning filmmaker and a black belt in karate. Welcome to the show, Kevon Durak Shanian. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you? What's happening? Fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute. So we've interviewed on a previous podcast, The Legends Master Show, and I really want to go on to the even deeper on the martial arts side of things, even though we were talking about some of your documentaries about that subject. I'd love just to kind of start off how you started in martial arts, why you got into it, how you got into it. Can you kind of start us off with your origin story? Okay. How, how back, how early do you want me to get that? So, you know, my family immigrated from Iran like in 1977, and I was pretty small at that time. And then when the revolution happened, there was a lot of backlash against like, you know, Middle Eastern people and stuff like that. So my dad kind of got scared because he didn't want, he wanted me to learn how to defend myself. And he said, hey, do you want to start taking some karate? Uh, the only place back then, it was like the YMCA. And you go to the YMCA, they only had two different styles. They had like Shotokan and they had Judo. So I was sitting and I watched him. My dad said, so which one do you want to do? Do you want to do the Judo or the karate? So there was this little kid in the Shotokan class that he started doing the nunchucks. And I said, hey, that's kind of like Bruce Lee. Well, Bruce Lee used to do it. <laughs> Let me do that one. Let me do that one. So it was my brother and I, we both went to the to the class. And basically the, the first day he started showing us like the katas. And so I, I loved it from like the moment like I started. It was like it was meant to be. But my brother, he was he wanted nothing to do with it. He said, <laughs> what the hell is this? Why are we punching people? Forget about it. But anyway, so I continued that for a long time. I started with the YMCA, and then I went to Sensei Demora's class, and then I continued it for a long time, for like about 20, 30 years after that, but on and on. Like, you know, wow. I went to school up in L.A. and stuff like that. So the styles that I did were like Shotokan. I did some Taekwondo, and I did some kickboxing. But, you know, it's in my heart. I just feel like, you know, I, I need to do it. So, and it's also good for your you know, for your physical wellness, you know, just as an exercise, because, Ed, you know, as you get older, it's harder to maintain your weight, so you got to keep active. So that's basically the background, how I got started. Wow. Yeah, kind of getting into that, I'm going to show a quick little surprise clip for you here. Oh, God. When you would compete, do forms, things like that, what was your mindset going into that? Obviously, you did a lot of drilling, but when you would go perform live, Talk us through, put us in your shoes as you're doing this, please. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, this was in UCI. So, you know, when we started karate, you couldn't get a black belt. So you had to go, the highest rank you could get is red. So when you went to the adult class after you turned 18, you had to start all over again. So this wow. was the time that I had already had my red belt. And then I started back from white belt again. And then this was a UCI tournament. So what happens when you go to tournaments, when you go up, I kind of like block out. I don't see anyone. As soon as I start doing it, it's kind of like a... I don't know when an actor does a scene. It's just he's into his moment. So I, as soon as I bow and I see the judge in front of me, everything turns blurry. I don't see anything wow. other than what I'm supposed to do. Cut forward 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, 30, 20, something like that. I don't know. It's been so long. So Sensei Demura, unfortunately, I don't know if you know, he passed away. Hear, yeah. That was, that was really sad. 
we I went to visit him on a Tuesday because I know Tuesdays they usually go out to eat and stuff like that. So he said, hey, Kevin, we're not going to go out tonight, but if you want, we can just go ourselves and we can just have some sushi and stuff like that. So we went out and we started talking and he said, you know, my tournament's coming up next week. Do you want to do you want to enter? I said, Sensei, I haven't done anything for so long. Like, what do I do? And then that same shit, the kata that you saw me do, that's like my go-to kata. It's like, oh, okay. forget something, that's the only thing I do. He said, okay, so just, you know, next week, just, I said, so should I come as a white belt because it's been so long? He said, no, 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 no. Just put your black belt on, just just compete, doesn't matter. I said, Sensei, I don't know if I can even get through the kata. He said, doesn't matter, just do your best. So that whole week I was practicing doing the same kata, same shin and all that stuff. So I went and I, I have footage of it, but it was so bad. I got through it. I mean, from beginning to end, I got through it. But comparing it to what you just showed me, it was like night and day. My gut was like hanging out. The funny thing was I was wearing the same black belt and I tied my black belt and it turned out like, a, you know, a bow tie where you wear a bow tie. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I get gained so much weight. But back then, you know, it was supposed to at least like hang down to like close to your knees and stuff. Yeah. Like so there was a, we have a neighbor, I went to her and I asked her, hey, is there any way of extending this belt so this it hangs down so I don't look like, you know? <laughs> so she cut another belt that I had and she pasted it up. And, oh, know, really? Yeah, yeah. But that, that, that whole week I didn't eat anything. So I ended up losing like about six, seven pounds. So on top of what she did, my belt was like overhanging past down my knees and stuff like that. Oh, man. But, <laughs> Yeah, when you go up, it's just you're in back then, you're in your own mood, your own place. You just don't see anyone. You do your thing. And then when you bow, you step out, you see the score. You go, oh, my God, that's pretty bad. Next time I'll do better. <laughs> you know what amazes me, too, about martial arts? I had started as a student in 2004. I went for about two years. Then moving and family and this, that, and the other thing. I was out for like four years. And I was like, man, you know, it'd be nice to get back. In 2010, I started getting back serious. And I haven't looked back since. And you see this with all the people in martial arts. Like you just mentioned there, conditioning definitely goes out the window for sure. That's, <laughs> yeah. That goes the most. You're not as tight or as sharp, but the techniques don't ever truly ever leave you. What do you think about that? You're right, correct. You're 100% right. So for me, when I was practicing at Sensei's place, he had a mirror that back then he had a mirror that you can kind of watch yourself. You know, once you reach it to a certain level, you know, looking at yourself, what you're doing wrong, what you're not doing wrong. So that period of week that, you know, I couldn't go to Sensei's place and train, I had to do it without a mirror and there was no one watching me to tell me, you know, to correct me and all that stuff. So what I realized when my daughter was there, she was recording me and I said, oh my God, my back was bent the whole time. And I was like, slouching ah. forward and all that stuff. But you're right, the techniques and stuff doesn't go, it's kind of like riding a bike. But after, you know, you haven't done it for so long, you get older, your posture kind of changes. Your belly comes out, your back, you start to lean. But yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't change. It's like it clicks. That's, that's very interesting. And, and that's what's so beautiful about martial arts in general. How did your training help you and carry over into your everyday life? Like what does martial arts mean to you? Oh, my God. It means, it means so many different things. What I miss about martial arts is the second family that I had. It's because I used to spend three, four, five days when the tournament was there. I was there on Sundays and we were teaching and helping and all that stuff. After we would go eat. That's one part that I miss. It's just, I feel like I've like lost my family somehow. So it's just oh. that that's one thing. 
And another thing that martial arts has taught me that I passed down to my kids, I have a girl and I have a boy, they're much older now, they're 19 and 20, but it made me aware of my surroundings. Like, you know, once you step out of the house, you immediately, like, you, it's, it's unconscious, it's, but you look at like 360 around you, like who's, around. so I live in Orange County, it's kind of safe here. But now for the past year, I've been in L.A. And L.A., you know, it's like a a student, so you don't know what the hell is going to (laughs) happen. But as soon as I step out of the house, I'm scanning. I scan, but it's unconscious stuff. So I passed down that to my girl because she used to work at this restaurant. And I said, you know, when you get out late at night, is there someone that's walking you to your car and all that stuff? And she said, Dad, Dad, don't worry. I have everything that you taught me since I was three years old. (laughs) It's in me. And I think I might have overdone it because I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, when I walk to my car, I kind of lean down to see if there's anyone under my car that's going to slash my... So she's aware of the whole, I don't know whether that's good or bad, but I'm kind of happy that, you know, I was able to at least pass that awareness down to my kids. That is so important. It's so important. You just be prepared, right? Just be ready or mindful of that because you never know. Correct. No matter where you are. No matter where you are. Another thing I love about it, any style of martial art, I could talk to any martial artist. I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu primarily, Sambo and Judo, but you talk to Karate, different forms of Kung Fu. I mean, you name it. And it's like a brotherhood or like you said, like a second absolutely, family. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So most of my friends, they're all somehow related to some sort of the martial arts. I would say 90% of them. And the ones that I have stuck with over the years, past 20 years, they're all somehow into martial arts. And even like to this day, like when we do a film and, you know, they have in their resumes written martial arts or I can jog or I can ride a bike. Blah, blah, blah. So as soon as I see martial arts, I bring up that conversation. Hey, what did you study? And if they say anything that I know of, immediately we just like connect. We become friends. Oh, let's go have dinner. Let's talk about huh. this. So it's kind of like, you know, when people go to college and they're part of like sorority, fraternity kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, I love that fact. And you, with your training side of things, I mean, you, you did that for a long time, competed, even came back and did it a bit. Uh, <laughs> what do you think everyone could take away and benefit from training martial arts, people who may not be even into it yet? One thing for me is treating people nicely, just just being kind to people and not exaggerating and not for me, what has karate has done to me is when attention comes to me, I shut down. So I don't like any type of attention at all. And when I'm somewhere, especially in our business, and someone is sitting across from me, hey, I know this person, I've done this, I've done that. It just, I just shut down. I, I don't know what it is. It's, I think it's not sure. It's who you are. You don't have to. Sh- you can sh- show people by the stuff that you're creating, by the stuff that you're doing. You don't have to tell them that I know this person. I've done this and all that stuff. So that <laughs> that kind of stuff like turns me up. So that, I guess that's another thing that I gained from Friday. Just be humble. Just be yourself. You know, treat people the way they want to be treated and, you know, stuff like that. And, and you said, yeah, especially in the time you came to the United States with your family, it was a kind of crazy time for you. I remember the last time I talked with you, we went a little more in depth on that. I know your dad helped you get into it for self-defense and, and all that, but what about the mindset that how much did it help you out mentally going through that phase? It helped me to walk away 
to not confront the situation and try to get into something or even try to defend what is coming to me, I try to step away. I just back away, take a couple of steps, and then I turn around and leave. This actually happened to me up in LA a week ago. Someone, really? I don't know if they had some mental issues or whatever it was, I'm not sure, but he was double the size I was. I mean, I looked at him, I was kind of scared shit. That's what he was gonna do. So he was walking toward me and I'm, you know, in Orange County here, I see someone and I go, hey, how are you? Or how's your day, blah, blah, blah. It just comes natural to me. But over there in LA, you can't. You mention anything, someone can take it a whole bunch of different ways. Wow. Well, he kind of looked at me, I said, hey, what's up? And then he came right in front of me, like really big. He was like towering, like, you know, at least five foot of, I don't know, this is really big. And then it got to a point that it got really, so he started, you know, saying some nasty stuff and all. I, and then I realized, you know, he has, maybe has a mental issue or whatever, maybe his day is not good, whatever. And I said, it's all good, sir. Everything is all good. And then I slowly backed up. I mean, I could have done something. I could have, I mean, the, the way it was positioned, his growing was right here. I could yeah. <laughs> it up right there, but you know. So you just have to learn just to back away. Just, there's no reason to fight anyone unless yeah. your life is in danger. Some Someone comes at you with a knife or a gun, that's a whole right. different situation. Yeah. But if they're just one-on-one, -on -one, you try to defuse it and just move on. I love the aspect too, because you know, the more people I know, the more they train, the less they're like, yeah, I don't want to get in a fight. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's less and less of it. Correct. It ruins your whole day. And then you start thinking about it, then you're explaining it to your friends. And then before you know it, the feeling is gone, but you're still inside your just your stomach is not in the right place. And then you forget right. about it and you don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling. So yeah. it's better to say thank you, sir. Everything, even if someone cusses at me, even if they send a back text, say hey, F you, blah, blah, blah. I say, yeah. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> We're done. That's it. You know, just I, I love that. And so much so that you kind of turn this into your career path, you know, so going to film school and we're going to kind of go out of sequence, so to speak, because I want to start off with the first thing we we're going to talk about from before. And that's, this was a phenomenal documentary. I, I highly, highly praise more than Miyagi, the Pat Morita story. And you kind of, at a younger age, you even got to meet oh, him. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Obviously meeting Pat Morita, you can go into that, of course. But what made you even want to go into making this film? So I, I always loved Pat, and I knew Pat as Arnold from Happy Days. Yeah, yeah. But there was no Karate Kid, and when I met him, it was all Arnold. And Happy Days was one of those shows that everyone watched, because back in, like, 1980s or something, early 80s, there were only three shows. It was Happy Days, Fonzie, and uh, Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. And that was it. You had no other choice. <laughs> so you would watch like Happy Days and then the next day you go, hey, did you see when Arnold did this or did that and all that stuff? So I had like big expectations of, you know, our, I, I, everyone liked that character. So the way this happened was I was doing the documentary on Sensei Fumi Demura. We had shown some footage of Pat Morita that we needed clearance for. So we went up to Vegas. and we, So when you need clearance, you have to go find a person who owns the state. So we had up the second wife. She said, no, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the third wife. So we had no option, but, you know, to get the rice cleared. So we went and talked to her. She was really nice. We went out and ate. And then we, and I said, since we're here, can we interview you for Fumi Denver's documentary? She said, sure. So we did the interview. And then afterwards, she started saying, you know, Pat, 
I feel so bad for Pat because, you know, when he was young, he saw his dad get hit by a car and yeah. a whole bunch of like different stories. And I said, wow, how come no one has ever told the story before? But I just left it alone. I, I didn't say anything. So uh, flash forward a year when the real Miyagi Fumi Demer story comes on Netflix, she watches it and she calls us. She says, oh my God, Kevin, this was so emotional, blah, blah, blah. And then that for me, that was the time to head her up. So I said, hey, Evelyn, what do you think of <laughs> the documentary on Pat? And then she said, you know, I kind of see it more as a narrative, like a story-driven kind of thing rather than oh. a documentary. And I said, that makes sense, but getting $20 million to do a narrative is much harder than doing a documentary. Documentary is quicker, you know. I can yeah. get money from a funder or wherever, and we can get going tomorrow. And then if there's any, you know, if anyone takes interest, and then we can explore that. She said, okay, that sounds good. So, so then we started that project. And that, that, that's how it happened. It was as simple as that. And there are so many, like, because when I, you know, obviously always loving martial arts. I think everybody, like, in the, at least in the U.S., when that came out, everybody went, tried karate. Or I know some people did Taekwondo that didn't have karate in their area. And they're like, you know, it was kind of branded as Korean karate because right, everybody's right. so inspired yeah. by that movie. Right, right, right. And, you know, we kind of mentioned before, like, you know, in the 60s and 70s, Kung Fu was like a big boom in the States, spearheaded by like Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan and others. Karate in the 80s uh, for Karate Kid. In the 90s, the president's kind of MMA. What's funny of all those examples is Karate Kid. As far as the characters and people in it, they didn't do karate. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why do you think Karate Kid was such a major cultural impact impact culture the way it did it was the son not having a father and having the men it was about the mentorship and it was about bullying it was whoever you were you could somehow relate to that movie yeah i mean if you didn't get along with your dad okay here's a dad that's willing to do everything for you take care of you and all that so so everyone came into it as a different thing for us, for me, it was basically there was no film that highlighted karate. That was this was the first one, but I remember the lines were when the Karate Kid film came out. It was I saw it here in Laguna Hills Mall, and the lines went all the way around the mall, wow. and you had to. This it was the first film that I actually waited in line to watch it because it. It represented everything that we have struggled for like, you know, 10, 15 years and no one has put a light on it. Like, you know, you have soccer, you have football, you have all this stuff and you tell people who you're doing Friday, like, what the hell is Friday? Like, Here it is. Watch it now. So, <laughs> so, and I think with films, people, there's only so many people that do martial arts. So if you do a martial arts film, even if you don't know how to do martial arts, no one's really going to know this. So yeah, you got to get a good, good actor that can carry yeah. that. You know, there's always, you know, stunt people that can, you know, turn into something nice. Look at like the Carradine films, the Kung Fu series that came out. Right. Yeah. He didn't know any credit and I love watching that movie. But then cut forward to what's created now, it's completely different. It's all martial arts and wires and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's come a long way. Yeah, it was interesting, too, because there's a lot of things in the documentary that surprised me about Pat. And, and obviously being interested in what that movie provided, you just got your imagination going in this area you didn't really know much about. What surprised you most when you're doing the different interviews and getting the different information for the documentary? What surprised you most about Pat? 
So when you do a documentary, any documentary, you basically spend like one month doing research on their life. Okay, he's been in this film, he's been in that film. As much as is online is, is as much as you're going to find out when you're creating the outline for it. And I do an outline. I don't do a script. I don't get into because I don't know the person that I'm asking the questions, what they're going to say and where they're going to, it's worse, where it's going to be headed. And the first one that I did, that's what I did. I tried, but it just didn't work. So, so you go, I ask someone something and it leads to completely something else. So for me, there, there were a lot of things that surprised me. I would say 50, 60% of it I couldn't share, but. Wow. Wow. The first version that we did ended up being like two and a, two and a half hours. Usually, when I do documentary, I don't really pay attention to how long it is. I just do it just to tell the story. But then we have a screening, and then I look at people. I sit back and I watch people, like two hundred people that I don't even know. I get people like you know off the street and whoever that I don't know about. Because if it's your friend, they're gonna say, "Yeah, this is a yeah. nice thing." Blah, blah, blah. And I think that's not any help. I need <laughs> they're gonna tell me nasty stuff. <laughs> So anyways, I watched it from, and there were some, some places that, you know, they were kind of looking at their phone and I said, okay, those things need to come out. So they don't need to tell me anything just by their reaction. I know what scenes work, what scenes doesn't work. But for me, the most surprising thing is the amount of alcohol that he drank. Wow. Yeah. If you look at, this is according to the assistant. I personally never witnessed this. I, you know, but I heard it through like four or five different people. He was drunk every day. So all the Karate Kid films that you see, one, two, three, like I would say every film that you see is drunk. Wow, man. But no wonder he got nominated for an Oscar. He was yeah. playing drunk while he was drunk. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I love the guy. He seemed like a nice person. He likes kids. He likes donating his time. And, you know, I don't know. He gravitates towards kids because he feels for him because when he was in that hospital, yeah. It's been so long since I've done that film, and I don't remember the dates. I think it was from like three to eleven or something. But well, he was wheelchair bound, right? And there's a an internment camp yeah. too. Yes. Yes, correct. So he was in a hospital. I can't remember what the hospital was. So he was surrounded by kids. So if he sees a kid that he can help, he would have done anything to help him. So he was overall, he was such a nice guy. So I didn't want to diminish his character, which there was nothing to diminish. But it's just you know. Alcoholism is a regular, you know, I have uncles who are, so it's very easy. You can relate to someone that has alcohol problem. Yeah. One of our neighbors has an alcohol. So it's not a big deal. Everyone knows someone. Yeah. So I just took like one story that I could just tell people he did have an alcohol problem. He realized it was an issue and he tried to fix that issue. But by the time he fixed it, he was just too old. It, you know, after a while, you know, it gets to you when your liver gets damaged and stuff like that. So, you know, that's the only surprise. But other than that, everything that I discovered from him, I liked him even more than, well, you know, the day that I met him. So. And he also went through harsh times, too. I mean, being an Asian comedian in the 60s, right. like that was kind of like, who else was doing that? You know, no one. Rare. I think there was only one more one person that was doing a Jack Sue. I, I could be wrong, but I think that's what the name was. Uh, it was him and another person, and he was actually called a hip nip. Just imagine being calling someone that now. I was thinking about get canceled. You know? They get canceled. Yeah, I would probably get canceled right now. So no, I was thinking about calling the documentary that, and I went to the uh, Asian community, the Japanese community, a guy that that I know pretty well. I told him, "What do you think if we call it this?" And he said, "Well, 
I don't know. I mean, if you do, you're going to get hate from one side. No one's going to watch it. I said, okay, then forget about it. So it was okay back then in the 60s, but it's not okay now. So, yeah, no, I get it. I mean, anything, any kind of derogatory stuff. And I'm very sensitive to discrimination. So anything yeah. that I have done, I mean, there's at least like five minutes of discrimination in any documentary that I've done that highlights all that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's so much of that. But at least things like that touch on that subject and help others that watch it and just raise awareness, of course. Correct. Um, there's a, a story in this I want you kind of finalizing this section. Go over the story of how Pat got the role of Mr. Miyagi. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, everyone knew Pat as Arnold. Happy days, the guy that was laughing and doing. He was doing, and then they know him from like the stand-up comedy and stuff like that. So John Avelson told Jerry Weintraub, the producer, "Hey, I'm thinking of getting Pat to do the role." And he said, "What are you talking about? The guy from Happy Days? Oh, there's no freaking way." So he just left it alone. So what John did is he went and recorded the whole audition. He took a script from a couple of pages from the Karate Kid film, and he had Pat redo, reenact all that stuff. So when they were in a production meeting, there was a TV with a VHS player. He takes the VHS. John was always he was always carrying a VHS camera. Well, you know those old VHS cameras. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he had that with him all the time. So he recorded that, he pops it in. While they're talking, he turns up the volume and he says, hey, Jerry, what do you think about this guy? So, and then Jerry looks over and looks at the thing. He says, wow, this guy would play a really good Miyagi. Who is this guy? He said, yeah, that's the guy that you didn't want from Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that always made, made me laugh, man. Uh, yeah, just go with the, what the director has got said there. <laughs> I wish I had footage of that to show in the documentary. I remember Pat explains it, but I only had like one shot of a production meeting, which would, which it was close to the production meeting that they had, but it wasn't the same one. So, you know, that would have been nice to see. That's great. Yeah. Also, I want to go into this earlier, and that's the real Miyagi, the man behind it all. And that's Fumio Demura. And also another shot of you. Oh, here. wow. And also him, obviously, you know, a lot of people may not know, but anytime like you see the Halloween scene where he's in the shower and gets beat up in Karate Kid, surrounded by the guys at the, the skeleton outfits, Demura is doing all the Correct, correct. If you go under John Avildsen's YouTube page, you can actually see that whole thing. They demonstrate that whole thing that wow. Sensei jumps over the cliff and they're running after him and all that stuff. Yeah, not that many people know about that. So when you met Demura, I mean, the guy's a legend. In the karate world, you knew him when you were younger, and obviously through life, he even got you to compete again. Um, what was he like? You know, what did he mean, not just to the karate world, but just the martial art world as a whole? So I, I'll tell you what he meant to me. He was basically kind of like a father figure to me. I have a father. My dad is lovely. He's a nice guy. But it's just sensei, when you approach him, he treats you like there. you could go in a conference where there's 4,000 people around, right? You, you approach him, you go, hi, Sensei, how are you? First of all, if he's met you 20 years ago, he'll remember your name. He'll remember a situation that you had, and he'll ask you about that. Wow. He treats you, he treated you in such a way that you are the only person right now that I'm talking to that I care about. That was like one of my favorite things about him. And the other funny thing is that, you know, his Japanese was, his English wasn't good. So when he came from Japan, he had a hard time, like, describing stuff and you know in karate when you're taking a karate class if yeah. someone's describing something to you like i would get there early because i loved karate and he would see what sensei would say hey, i'll get you to go 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 
And I go, sensei, so in karate, you can only ask like one time. If you ask one more, like two times, it's disrespectful. So I said, sensei, I'm sorry, I didn't hear. What did you say? And he repeats it again. So, and then I didn't, I couldn't understand what (laughs) he said. So I look around and I try to just imagine what he would be asking. So I go bring something to him. Sensei's going, no, 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 no. And then I, I, like the third time I got it, he was asking me to close the window. So I go close the window. He goes, good, Kevin, good, good, good. <laughs> and he was such a lovely person. There's so many different stories that I can tell. But there's uh, only one that kind of stands out to you that like really kind of represented who he was. Oh, okay. I have another story. And that picked the same picture the day that I took that picture. Yeah. I, I got second place doing a kata as a yellow belt. Yeah. And then I won uh, a little medal. And so after the kata competition, you have the kumite competition. So I took my medal and I put it in my shoes because my parents weren't there. So I stuck it in my shoes. And then so I did my kumite. And then when I came back, my medal wasn't in my shoes anymore. Someone had taken it. And then I told Sensei, I said, Sensei, I was like 10 years old. I told Sensei, hey, someone stole my medal. He said, lesson number one, don't leave your medal in your shoes. <laughs> so, so the way I met Sensei is when we were practicing in the YMCA, like every six months, we used to go do our belt testing, yellow belt, purple belt, whatever. So he had the main dojo that we would go there and test in front of him and all his black belts. So the first time I met him was when I was a yellow belt. And then also when he did his tournaments, I was practicing in the YMCA, all his tournaments would be in the YMCA dojo. So that's how I got to know. Oh, that, that's so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, at a young age, get to know these icon, iconic right, guys, right, you know? Right. And he would ask you, like, as I got older, he asked me, hey, Kevin, what do you wanted to do? What are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm doing, you know, documentaries. I'm doing films and all that stuff. And then what happened was Dan Ivan. I don't know if you know who Dan Ivan is. That Dan Ivan is the person who found Sensei from Japan and brought him over. Oh, okay. So Dan Ivan asked me, he said, hey, Kevin, what do you think if we do some instructional videos for Black Belt Magazine with Sensei? So I helped Sensei do a couple of those things. So every time he was doing something, he would ask me, hey, if I wanted to get involved or not. He was a very caring person. Yo, let me ask you this, because you have an interesting perspective on it. Because you started this when you were younger. You knew these guys. This is like well before Karate Kid came out, for example. Right. right uh, when that blew up and all of a sudden all everybody's doing karate out of nowhere, Oh, your thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> what was that like? When karate blew up, it's just our our. Um, okay, so I had moved on from the YMCA and I went to another dojo, which they were also doing Shotokan, Paul Gacha and Mission Viejo. I was there for a long time, maybe six years, seven years, I don't remember. But what happened with the karate world? Everyone found karate like this. I don't know, this other alternative sport that they couldn't do on their own because it depends what kind of personality you have. Some people are into team sports. They want to do things that, you know, they get a team support because they might not be sufficient in that area, so they want to help of others. Or it could be maybe, I, I don't know what the reason is. For me, I was always one-on-one. I always did tennis. I always did things that are, because when I'm at fault, I don't want to blame anyone. Even when I do films, I tend to like kind of take over and do all the aspects myself. So what we saw after the karate hit, it was there was a surge of like kids like waiting outside the dojos all over the place. But now when the Cobra Kai came out, everyone was hoping the same thing was going to happen, but it hasn't happened. 
it's been six, seven years that the Cobra Kai has been out. And more people have seen Cobra Kai than the Karate Kid. And I asked all the people around, I said, hey, has that ever changed anything? Is it like when it, they said, no, it hasn't changed anything. Because I think people are just so consumed with their phones and stuff like that. I don't think this generation wants to put in the effort to do anything. And I'm not saying all of them, but yeah. I, am, I would say a good 80% of them. Yeah, the focus is elsewhere. It's, it's less physical. The problem is, I quickly I can tell you, is that you know when they're on their TikTok, when they're on their phone, they're looking at people who have made it. Like, let's just say Kardashians for the example. <laughs> they look at Kardashians, they go, "Wow, oh my God, they own this, they do this, they do this," and I'm just looking at them like the person whoever looking at them. They're walking around, they're going to the beach, they're going to shopping, they're doing all this stuff. But what they don't realize is they're working 24 hours to make right. those videos. They're working 24 hours for that business. They don't get to see that. So they see, oh, the so Kardashians have this $200 million house. They have this $100,000 house. Oh, yeah, I should do the same thing. And how do I do that? Well, you know, by doing nothing, it's just going to come to me. And I always, everyone that has a kid that's 20 years old, 19 years old, I have this conversation with them. It's not just my kids. It's like everyone's kid is like that. And we have a business that we hire people, you know, that are in their 20s and all that stuff. And you can tell the difference. The generation is like completely has changed. And yeah. nothing you can do about it. So I don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully I'm not going to be around to see the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> but for now, I don't know. I'm just waiting to see. But you know, there are people like for my son, he's very motivated. He goes, even my daughter's motivated. But my son is studying to become a lawyer. And oh, he, wow. knows, he knows his passion. He knows he needs to do this. He needs to do that. So there are some people who are out there. Some people just, I don't know what they're thinking. I honestly have no clue. That, I mean, that's a fantastic point too, applying towards martial arts, but anything, even like with you making your films, like it's like you, they see you, you're winning the awards and everything, but it just that's great. so much. Like, I think I talked to you last time, like, hey, we got, what are some tips on doing documentaries? Like, oh, if you want to make money and have a life. Stay away from documentaries. Stay away from documentaries. <laughs> we, we've been, like, what I found out when I did the first documentary is that I could be wrong. Maybe there's someone watching that they have some other experiences. But in terms of my experience, karate is not beneficial. I mean, because for me, like when I did the first documentary, it was about Shotokan. Like, let's say when you watch yeah. the karate kid films. No one says, oh, yeah, they're doing Shotokan. I'm not into Shotokan. They're, uh, uh, I'm into jujitsu, so I don't really care. But in Empty Hand, where it was about Shotokan, people would watch it. They would go, yeah, Shotokan is a defensive thing. Why would I want to watch this? So what, what makes the documentary about five kids going through a journey different than the Karate Kid? There is no difference. There is no difference. Yeah. So I learned through this to... Not do any more martial arts. Unfortunately, I mean, I've been hit up by a lot of people, a lot of different masters that want to do it. And I say, what is your ultimate goal? And they say, well, we, you know, we want to try to get into Netflix. We want to try to get into Amazon and all that stuff. And I give them the example. I said, Sensei Demora was a nice person. We basically got lucky because he had the connection of the Karate Kid and the Pat Morita. And, the, and when Netflix looked at they, they were the ones that told us. They said it was because of the Karate Kid connection that we're able to market this. But if it's a regular person that no one knows, good yeah. luck. It's also important, just the storytelling side. You know, Empty Hand, The Real Karate Kids, this, this is your first full-length project pumped out. Right. Uh, were you always interested in telling 
stories like this? Like what inspired you to become a documentary filmmaker? So what happened was I started doing narrative films. I started doing, oh. here I have a picture of it just for convenience. So it was called The Ultimate Game, J.D. Rifkin. He's still, T.J. Storm, he's actually still into martial oh, arts. Yeah. And J.D. Rifkin, it has a studio and he's very successful. A very nice guy. Both of them very nice people. So I was in my 20s when I made that movie. And then we spent long time making that movie there's like over 60 characters in there we kind of we kind of took the same vibe as let's say enter the dragon blood sport like where you go into a tournament and so i realized you know we got it done it was hard it took a long time but we got it done so we delivered a product even though it's not the greatest thing honestly i wouldn't recommend anybody watching this from me from one to ten i give it a two but okay. you know just try to be real but just for fun of it if you want to watch it go ahead and watch it but i love the people who are in it very nice guys so i spent so much time so much money making that thing and then when we gave it to the distribution company they sold it to all the blockbusters, all the Hollywood videos. And I don't remember back then, if you remember that, you know, VHS were selling for like $79. So I used to go and I see the whole, like there was like 30 of them in each blockbuster. And I did the math and I said, okay, $79 times 6,000 plus times 4,000, blah, blah, blah. So when I did the math, it ended up being like $3 million. And I told the distribution guy, I said, hey, we're supposed to get 20%. He said, no, yeah, you're right, 20%, but, you know, it's 20% after our expenses. And he oh. made up this sheet that said, I took the producers to Cannes. I went to Mayfield. I went to AFM. I did all this. And then at the end, you know how much we got? $19,000. $19,000. Out of that? Oh, of my that. goodness. And then the problem is the actors in there, every time they see me, they look at me, they go, yeah, I know your film was in the Hollywood video. Oh, you must be, you have, where's our money? I'm trying yeah. to tell you. I did, we spent like, you know, God knows how much money and time making this thing. I, you want me to take you to McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my treat. Everyone, let's go to McDonald's. So basically, I started doing a film festival. I did a film festival for 12 years, and I got to know a lot of people. You know, people were coming in with one Academy Award, and so I slowly tried to figure out what my path was, and that took a while. And then I was hanging around with one of my friends, Oscar Alvarez. He came over one time. He said, you know... You're, you're yeah, you do a lot of work with him. Yeah, I've known him for a long time. Nice guy. We were sitting and talking. He said, so, Kevin, what do you want to do? I said, you know what? I think I'm ready to do another film. I don't want to do a narrative, but I want to do a film, like anything. Just let's just do something. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, you know, I like karate. And then he said, well, you know, I like anything that has to do with kids. I said, there you go. We came up with our first title, Karate Kids. Let's okay. <laughs> so, <That's the> <laughs> yeah, so I went to my teacher, Paul Gacha, and I told him, hey, what do you think if we, you know, showcase your kids about going from the regionals to the nationals and to the world? He said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So basically, that was my first thing, my first first documentary. And that was, to me, was successful in many different ways. I Basically, I realized I know how to edit. I know how to shoot. And then I know how to sell it. So whatever we spent making the film, we ended up making the money back. So to me, that was success. Some of it's just like, just get started, right? Don't sit on yes, it. Or yes, I, I have a very good example for people who are watching and they go, well, you know, I need a Airy Red or I need the Sony blah, blah, blah. I need microphones. I need the crew. I need all that stuff. 
No, you don't need any of that stuff. So we just right now, last month, another friend that I have, David uh, Damon Figueroa, very nice guy. We decided to do a documentary on this woman who happens to be also a black belt in karate that I didn't know. <laughs> and, and she helps migrants in a way that, you know, the migrants that cross from Mexico to Arizona. Yeah. Helps them, like, put water out, food out. If she sees anyone, you know, uh, she gives them blankets, shoes, socks, and all that stuff. Legally, you can't transport anyone, but you can help them if they're starving, obviously, as a humanitarian, you would help them, right? And that's what the story is about. So we were out there, and it was really cold. It was, for me, anything, like, anywhere from, like, 30 to 40s, it's cold. So we were outside, and it was raining, and it started snowing. And I had my crew in the car. And so we had all big Sony cameras and stuff like that. So we see people crossing. We see deers crossing. We see Shura, which is the name of the character. She's 81 years old and she's helping me go. So she goes out and she starts talking to people. And I said, okay, let's go shoot this. Let's go shoot. So with the big cameras, by the time you do the adjusting, you put out, put the, your media card in there, you do all this stuff, the shot is gone. Like, what's the purpose? Yeah. And so I said, okay, let's get everything ready in the car. And then as soon as, you know, we go out, we're ready. So we did that. We, we did that. We had it turned on. But still, when you go outside, the exposure is different from inside. You got to focus. You got to sit. I said, listen, guys, let's stop this whole professional nonsense altogether. Get out your phones. We're going to shoot everything on the phone. So, and it worked. Awesome. We all had iPhone 13, 14. I put it on portrait mode. I swear to God, if I show you, I've showed people and you will not know this shot on an iPhone. Wow. So there's no reason for someone not be able to do a story. Right now, you can get zoom lenses for the iPhone. You can get microphones for the iPhone. You can get anything that you want. And no one will know. You have something in your head? Take your iPhone and shoot it. Yes. The, same, the same with documentaries. That's the reason I went to documentaries. Like today, I could come up with a story. Let's say, uh, you know, uh, let's let's do a story about my gardener that comes every week that he struggles with, you know, raising money for his family. Okay, I'll get my phone tomorrow. I talk to him and I start doing the documentary. That's it. But you just, the most important thing is to find the arc of the character and yeah. to be able to tell a story. Once you have that in your head, you can do a story about anything. There's a guy at the festival, one of the guys that submitted the festival. It was a story about a box, a box, just a yeah. box. It's been transferred from, I think, 1930. It went from this person, and then someone did artwork on it, and it, the value went up, and then they ended up selling it at uh, an auction for like $1.2 million. It was about a box. <laughs> it got nominated for an Oscar. So it really doesn't matter. Wow. It doesn't matter what it is. Everyone can do it. I love the other thing real quick. You said too that, you know, especially you were like interviewing people for the Miyagi story. And that was like, I mean, you can have a scripted thing, but you're getting other things out of these questions and it shouldn't be so rigid. Oh, rigid. No, 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 it shouldn't. Like, let's say I have in my mind, I want to ask something about, let's say I go and ask Evelyn or I ask Ralph something about how Pat was, you know, doing this and doing that. And then in my head, I'm thinking that they're going to tell me something about what went on on the set. And what, and then they shift over to like something else. What happened behind the set? What happened after the set? What did we do? What did he do? What did he? And then the story goes completely somewhere else. And I go, wow, that's more interesting. Let's go there. So the next person that I interview, like if Ralph said, hey, Zapka was in there with me when we did this. The director was there with me when we did this. 
So I go, when I see them next time, I ask them questions regarding whatever Ralph said. By the way, Ralph and Zapko, very nice people. Very nice oh, people. yeah. And they're, uh, of course, in the, the film, absolutely amazing guys. I think as we're kind of wrapping up here, I do have one more question planned. But when you said that announce you as this, because when I first met you, it was Kevin Derrick. Yes, correct. And uh, there's a story here I want to hear. I know there's a story oh, here. You're going to get me emotional. That's why I want to go into yes. it. I have, knowing yeah. you, I have a funny feeling. Prepare for it. When did you go by Kevin Derrick? I'm thinking maybe that's like your screen name or something. But I think there's something. So, it, okay, it's not really that big of a deal. But when I was in high school, I got trouble one time in uh, lunchtime. I don't remember what I was doing. And then the principal comes. The principal doesn't know me. So he comes and says, what's your name? And I'm like shivering. <laughs> because I know if, if any time there's a phone call to my parents, yeah. It was trouble. When I get home, it was trouble. But my parents didn't speak English, so my brother had to take over and translate and all that stuff. So even even with like the credit cards, if I got like a B or a C or something, I would kind of intercept that whole mail process to try to change <laughs> it with a pen to an A or something like that. <laughs> so I didn't want any conflicts happening when I got home. So basically, I told the principal, he said, what's your name? I said, K uh, K Kevin. And then, and then, so I shortened my last name to Derek, and I just—that's when it started. I just did Kevin Derek, and then us being Middle Eastern, we've mm. gone through any minority. You know, every if you, this is a line from one of my films that that I'm going to do next month. That you know, if you wait long enough, it comes around. You know, the American Indians got it, the Jews got it, the Japanese got it. So we all get our turn. So back then, it was our turn. So we just had to deal with it the best way that we could. And for me to change my name to... So when I told someone I was from Iran, or I would just say, hey, I'm Kevin, I'm Kayvon, they go, what? Savon? Avon? So <laughs> it's just... So I just, you know, I got to a point that I said, you know, let me just change it to Kevin. And then when the whole... What do you call it? The desert storm came. There was a whole yeah. bunch of racism going on. For me, at least when I was going to college, AU this, AU that. So when I told them I was kept, even though I look Middle Eastern, but when I was doing emails or other stuff, it was like less harsh going as Kevin than going as Gavon. Wow. And then when Trump came, I'm not for any side nor against any side. I think all news stations, they all have their agendas. So I'm not right. for or against anyone. So I'm not saying it was a bad thing, or, but it was for me, it was a bad thing having that president because mm. he was just spewing so much hate that I was seeing the repercussions when I was going out in, wow. in the marketplace. They would like hit me in the shoulders. They, it's just, I don't know, like I'm walking all of a sudden and someone would like slam into me. I didn't do anything. I mean, there's so many, so many different things that even in the airport, I can go on and on and on with like stories that happened. Oh, I bet. But I kept that name. I just kept that Kevin Derrick for the longest time. And then I don't know. It's just when we started this business last year, we had this partner and he just said, why don't you go back to your own name? Just, you know, people just have to deal with it. I mean, I don't know. I just came to a turning point at the age that I am with my kids. I didn't want to show them that I'm ashamed of who I was. Wow. Okay, here I go. Yeah, that's <laughs> deep. So, okay, so just one thing that I don't even think my son knows is that 
when he was going to college, when we went to his dorm, he had a Persian flag, like really big in it on his wall. So when I saw it, I was proud of it. But at the same time, I felt in my stomach, what if the same thing happens to him that happened to me? But I didn't want to let him know to take that down because I didn't want to show that I'm somewhat, not, not ashamed, but I'm fearful for his life. But I didn't want to let him, I didn't, I, I didn't say anything. So thank God it's over. He was there for three years. And he, I, I'm not talking about a flag that was this big. It covered a whole oh. part of his wall. And he was like part of the, you know, this association. The people would come to his house. So he would see. But through him and through my daughter, I realized now it's cool to be from somewhere else. And that's basically the, the message of the short film that I'm shooting at the end of the month. Wow, that's amazing. And that kind of segues perfectly into the last question is your future projects. Can you tell people what that is and when to expect? Uh, so there's a whole bunch of things going on. This last year, we got introduced to this wonderful person. And we right now we're in LA. We're doing a lot of content videos. Where now it's given me freedom to do the stories that I want to tell besides the content videos. So like this story with David Damien, which talks about this humanitarian and then at the same time, I'm doing this true story based on a friend that I had that experienced some um, hate after 9-11. It was so bad that he couldn't come out of his house. So after I do that, that's going to be proof of concept that I'm going to turn into a feature. So that's my short-term goal, to be able to do those two stories. So hopefully, if it happens, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been actually amazing catching up with you. and. You know, the, the whole life, just how martial arts has kind of been with you, not just in life, but your career and moving forward as well. And, and it is amazing to see. I just love stories across the board. And your story is quite amazing, sir. So oh, thank you. Thank, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was nice uh, seeing you again. Oh, do this sooner, not wait two years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. You got um, it. Take care, man. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.